Well, I just want to say that is the greatest corporate program testimony of a pastor I've ever heard. I want to thank Pastor Andrew for that. That is huge. And uh, some of the things that normally I might would say as uh, your executive director and treasurer for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, he said so very well. And I just want to thank uh, your pastor, Andrew, for the kind invitation to be here with you today. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe being back with you one day to just hear him preach. And so to all of you, welcome. Let me, let me, let me add, if I might, just, just a little more information about what he was speaking of as far as when you give a dollar in your offering plate today, that a portion of that dollar, a percentage of that dollar does come, it doesn't come to our office. I always like to say it comes through our office. And there's a huge difference because our office is simply the collection point for corporate program money that then gets passed on, as Andrew so beautifully mentioned, to ministries right here in South Carolina. Uh, there are a couple of hundred orphans being cared for this morning, not terribly far from here, over in Greenwood at the Connie Maxwell and other campuses that they have in Orangeburg and opening another campus in the Lowcountry. And those ministries are made possible because of your giving this morning Somewhere around the world are nearly 4,000 missionaries, International Mission Board missionaries, Southern Baptist missionaries who are supported through the corporate program. So a part of that dollar, uh, or 10 or 100 or 1,000 or however much you might give, does come through our office where then it's distributed uh, here in our state, the United States and around the world. So I just want to say again, thank you, Morningside, for your faithfulness and for being part of the South Carolina Baptist Convention of Family, uh, family of Churches. There are about 2,125 churches that make up our South Carolina Baptist Convention. And you're one of those. And um, this morning, and this is kind of a pre-COVID statistic I'm about to give you. COVID has certainly changed uh, our gathering and how we even count uh, our numbers with online worship and all those kinds of things. But on any given what I would call normal Sunday, uh, there are roughly 300,000 South Carolina Baptists who are worshiping live in those 2,125 churches. Now, uh, of course, being the Baptists that we are, there are several other thousand that the FBI can't find. But we're talking about the ones that we know who actually come and worship in churches just like Morningside. So it is such a joy and a delight and honor for me to be here with you today. I want to ask you, uh, if you will, to take your Bible. I hope that you have your Bible. And if you don't, hopefully you have an iPhone or an iPad or however you. I'm kind of old-fashioned. I still like to hold a Bible in my hand. But uh, I want you to open with me this morning to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now when you get your Bible and open it to that passage... I want you to keep it open for this reason. We're, uh, we're going to kind of land on some verses in 1 Kings 18, particularly over around verse 21. Uh, but there are a couple other support verses in some chapters preceding chapter 18. We're going to kind of move towards that passage, if you will. Uh, and so, again, I hope you have your Bible open as uh, we turn our attention now uh, to the preaching and the teaching and the study of the Word of God. If you'll allow me the opportunity and the privilege, though, would you join with me as we go to our Lord in prayer before we attend to His Word? Father, we are so very grateful and thankful today. We thank you that 
You allowed us to get up this morning, to wake up, and to have our life. The scripture says that we move, and we live, and we breathe, and we have our being because you have given us the gift of our lives. Father, we also thank you today, not only for the gift of our physical life, but God, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. We know, too, that eternal life comes from your hand and from your heart. It is because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that we have eternal life. And God, we would go ahead and pray and ask this morning that if there's anyone who perhaps might be live and in this building worshiping or perhaps even worshiping online, but God, if there's someone today within the hearing of uh, this message not what I have to say, but what the Holy Spirit will have to say through your word. God, if there's somebody here today who does not have the certainty of eternal life, we would pray today that, again, they might hear clearly the gospel and that they might respond so that their lives will be changed for eternity. And so, God, now would your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who is our guide this morning, would you come now and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts so that we might receive today what you have to say to the church. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. Well, the title of my message today, Firefall, actually comes from the title of a book by, written by Dr. Malcolm McDowell, uh, who for many, many years served as the, a professor of evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And my personal opinion is that Dr. McDowell's book is probably, I believe, one of the greatest collection and research books, if you will, on great historic revival movements and spiritual awakenings. And let me define the difference between revival and, and spiritual awakening. Revival is what happens in the hearts of the people of God. Uh, to revive means to bring back to life. And for example, when you read uh, in, in the book of Revelation, when John on the Isle of Patmos wrote those uh, letters uh, in chapters 1 and 2 and uh, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, he was speaking to the churches. And, and over and over and over in that passage, you'll, re you'll recall passages like this, like in Laodicea, uh, they had left their first love, and he's calling them back to their first love. So revival is what happens in God's people. It happens inside the church. But the effect of revival in the people of God, in the churches of God, uh, then begins to influence and affect the culture and the society. And we normally refer to that as spiritual awakening. And, and so Dr. McDowell's book does a wonderful job of just documenting both biblical revivals, biblical awakenings, and also then some historic ones. Here in the United States, for example, we know now historically we can look back, uh, going back to the 18th century particularly, and find that about every 50 to 60 years here in America that there has been a spiritual awakening. Now, I just want to let you know it's been about 50 or 55 years, depending on how you want to count uh, the Jesus movement of the early 70s or maybe late 60s, 
I do believe that that was a spiritual awakening in our nation. And all I have to say is, as bad as things are around us right now in our country and in our culture, I have some good news. If the clock is continuing to be accurate, we are perfectly poised for another spiritual awakening in our country. And heaven knows we need it, do we not? And so I, I just want you to know, today's message is about revival and spiritual awakening. Now, 1 Kings chapter 18, our primary text this morning, uh, is going to recount one of those biblical times of awakening in the nation. You'll know most of this story. Uh, the context of this story is when there was a showdown, if you'll remember, between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel uh, over in Israel. And so while we may know that event, what we may not fully appreciate are some of the events that led up to this 18th chapter. And that's why I want to give a little more of a, a bit of a context this morning. And so I just want you to understand that, that what we're about to read when we get to the 21st verse, really this message covers actually six decades, almost 60 years of time, and really covers about 17 chapters uh, uh, of the Bible. And uh, I know you'll be thrilled that we're not going to look at all of that, okay, today. We'd be here until breakfast in the morning. And so I want to give you just some snapshots and hit some highlights as we begin to get to this passage, again, that I've referred to as Firefall. Now this is, this passage, 1 Kings 18, is the only recorded revival that takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, you may remember that after King Solomon died, that the kingdom, Israel, was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. And uh, in, in, uh, if you'll remember that, our, our story today, now just get this in your mind, is actually covering uh, some history that occurred in the northern kingdom. And again, if you go back and read the Bible very carefully and study it carefully, there were 19 different kings who reigned during about a 212-year period of time in that northern kingdom. And listen to this. Out of 212 years, out of 19 kings, the Bible tells us only two of them followed the Lord. Only two of them were worth their salt spiritually. The rest of them, the Bible says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, just... So you kind of remember who those two kings, the good kings were in the northern kingdom were Asa and Jehoshaphat. And so this is the time period historically that we're talking about. Now I want to kind of fast forward, if you will, as we get to chapter 18. Uh, after King Jeroboam, who was an evil king in the northern kingdom, uh, about 58 years, nearly 60 years, nearly six decades have now passed since he came to power. He was on the throne a long time. And now there were actually eight other kings who had reigned or ruled during the whole time of Elijah, who's kind of our prophet that we're going to be talking about here today. But the problem began in Jeroboam, who was a wicked leader, wicked king, who set up in the northern part of Israel in a city that the ruins are still there. I've actually seen them with my very own eyes on the couple of trips I've taken to the Holy Land. It was in Dan. He actually had another area called Bethel. There are several Bethels in Israel, but you'll most normally remember Dan in the Bible. I've been there 
And again, uh, King Jeroboam set up this substitute place of religion. I want you to hear this. You know, there were a couple of reasons that he did that. One of them was because convenience. He lived up north, and it was just a long way to go to Jerusalem. And so he, he said, you know, why do we have to go all the way to Jerusalem? Let's just set up our own system, our own place of worship. And I think there's a lesson there for the people of God. You know, I'm, uh, it, sometimes it's a little inconvenient to come to church, isn't it? You know, we want it. Matter of fact, with COVID, and a lot of people have gotten used to worshiping online. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that we had that option but listen, there's no substitute for the gathering of the people of God in the house of God. I just want you to know. So I'm glad you're here today. For those worshiping online, we're glad you're there. Uh, but at the same time, if you can get here, you need to get here. Because Jeroboam represented a time where people, as a matter of personal convenience, went to a different place. But not only that, he set up his own system. He began to appoint and uh, anoint uh, his own priest, if you will, who were not from the tribe of Levi. And he even substituted, listen to this, this is going to sound a whole lot like the day of Moses and Aaron. There in Dan, they had two golden calves that they set up in this little place of worship. And he anointed his own priest who were not authorized priests. And he just set up his own little system. That's the backdrop with Jeroboam. Now, enter another king in this history that you will know. And of all the bad kings, of all the bad 17 kings, this one took the cake. His name was King Ahab. You remember him? You heard his name? You know about Ahab. Let me tell you a bit more about Ahab because Ahab is now the one who's coming into focus. 58 years of Jeroboam, 58 years of this godless, convenient uh, system, if you will. And now Ahab comes to the throne and that 58 years of godless substitute worship had taken its toll. Now here's an irony about this story and a parallel with America today. At the end of all of this, when Asa, Ahab rather, comes to power, the country is incredibly strong militarily. They are incredibly strong economically. I mean, on the surface, things looked pretty good when people looked at it in terms of we can fight off our enemies and, and my pocketbook's doing pretty well. I've, I've got money in the bank. So on the surface it looked pretty good, but here's what was happening. Underneath the surface, down where the foundation lay, is that the spiritual and the moral condition of the northern kingdom was absolutely in shambles. And so enter King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was a good politician. He was a really good politician. Today, we would call him a slick politician. How, how do, why do I say that? Well, he married a woman. Y'all know her name. Call, call her out loud if you know. Let's, uh, what was his wife's name? Remember? Jezebel. You ever heard of Jezebel? We still talk. You know, that's still a name that we throw around and uh, somebody we want, not many people name their children Jezebel. Maybe they do, but he marries this woman named Jezebel. And he marries her primarily for these reasons. It was a political alliance. It would help the nation economically. And it would also strengthen a military alliance. And he could have cared less, Ahab, when he married Jezebel. But let me tell you about Jezebel's father. Her father's name was Ethbaal, which means Baal lives. A false god, a no god, if you will. 
And her father was even a prophet of Baal who had even killed his own brother, assassinated his own brother so he could become the king of Phoenicia. And so Ahab marries this godless woman with a godless heritage, but he was smart enough, not only was he a slick politician, he was pretty smart in this regard. Happy wife, happy life. Can I get a testimony, okay? I mean, because he wanted to keep his wife happy. Now, I've been married nearly 43 years, and one of my deacons uh, in the church I pastored in Little Rock used to always, here was his philosophy on marriage. He'd been married 60 plus years. But he said every day, every husband needs to wake up and ask two questions, and it'll, it'll set the course of your life. And it's this, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? You can't be both. Now, I don't know. Y'all can kind of think about that later on. It's pretty good advice, isn't it? Well, that was Ahab. Ahab wanted to be happy. And so he defaulted to Jezebel. And so what happened is that the first lady, if you will, Jezebel of Israel, went on this campaign, if you will, to do two things. Number one, she wanted to get rid of the real prophets of God. She had to eliminate the opposition. And secondly, she wanted to install her own belief and belief system. And you know what? She pretty well succeeds, almost succeeds. But there was a man, a godly man, a divinely appointed man by the name of Obadiah over in chapter 18 and verse 4. Let's do look there before we get to uh, the, the later verse. Actually, verse 3. Now, Ahab called on Obadiah. By the way, there are 13 Obadiahs in the Bible. We're not sure if this is the one for sure. If he wrote the book of Obadiah, it could be, but we don't, can't prove that. But don't get confused. There are a bunch of Obadiahs. That's kind of, it, was, it was a popular name, kind of like you know John or Thomas or Steve or whatever. So there was an Obadiah. But Ahab called Obadiah who was over the household, and Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, because what Jezebel had done is get all the prophets of, the, of God, and he was, she was going to have them killed. But Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them in two groups of fifties in a cave and then fed them with bread and water. In other words, God was using a man by the name of Obadiah to protect a remnant of godly people. Now, let me stop and interject one other quick thing before we kind of dive into the application of this story when we get to the main verses. You see, what, what had been going on for 58 years in the northern kingdom was a slow, steady, spiritual decline, but it was now about to pick up steam. Can I say that again? 58 years in northern Israel... A slow, steady, spiritual decline, but it was about to pick up steam. That's America's testimony today. It's where we are. There's been a slow, steady, and I'm going to even say about the same number of years. I'm not going to get off on this tangent. But you go back to the early 70s when Roe versus Wade, for example, was passed, and we made abortion legal in this land. That, that's a part of a slow, steady spiritual decline that has continued to pick up steam. Would any of us have ever dreamed 
just even five years ago, much less 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But think about the radical things that have happened and are happening in our country today in so many areas, in so many places. There has been this slow, steady spiritual decline. But suddenly, just like in northern Israel, it picked up some steam. So now we can either wring our hands and, 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 and run for the hills or we can do what we're going to see in our scripture here today. Because you see Jezebel, man, she went on the all-out attack. She really did. It was a no-holds-barred attack to try to silence the voices who would dare to speak for a holy God. And look, there are plenty of prophetic silencers out there today, aren't there, trying to silence uh, the pulpits in America. And that's why this story is so important. And quite frankly, I think it's kind of exciting because I want to tell you how the story ends. And this is going to get us into the midst of our text. Now, the first teaching point I want you really to see now as we dive a little more deeply into our section in chapter 18 is this. Look, God always sends warnings to a nation. He will always send warnings to a nation. Over in chapter 17, listen to this. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 17. This is where Elijah is introduced. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. You know what God was doing? He was sending Ahab in the northern kingdom. He was sending a warning. He was giving them a chance. He was saying, look, things are about to get bad uh, economically because there's going to be a drought. And this drought and this famine was going to come as a warning. Now look, God always brings warnings. I believe that God's been bringing warnings to America over the past many generations and decades as well. And if we ignore those warnings, if we don't repent, if we don't return, then we will go the very same way that Israel went in this particular situation. See, the short of the long of it was that in Ahab's life, that not even the economic calamity that did happen because of the drought, it didn't soften Ahab's heart. He doubled down. It made him harder. And once the drought, look at verse 17 now, chapter 18. I told you this is going to be a little bit of a Bible drill. Over in chapter 18, look what happened. Ahab blamed the prophet of God on the problems that the nation was encountering. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And I really like Elijah's answer. <laughs> he said... He answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commands of the Lord and followed the Baals. You know, there are a lot of people in our country today who say that the problem with America is Christians in America today. That it's our heritage, our culture, and that we've ramrodded this and ramrodded that. It's exactly what happened with Ahab. Ahab was blaming uh, the godly ones in their day. And the fact of the matter was that God had been sending these warnings and been trying to tell them, if you don't turn, if you don't change, trouble is coming. I believe that that's pretty much where we are and have been in America as well. So God will bring warnings into nations before his judgment comes. But the second thing that we see in this story in the midst of that warning, God will raise up prophetic voices. God always does. Now, again, in chapter 17, um, 
Elijah is that prophetic voice that's being raised up. Now listen, I'm not about to say uh, that I'm uh, uh, Elijah or that Pastor Andrew is Elijah. We all have different calls and different ministries. But let me tell you what. Those who are called to stand in the pulpits of America, if they are preaching, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, if we preach anything other than the authoritative, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God, we are preaching the wrong thing. You with me? And I used to tell churches I pastored, look, you know, y'all might decide to get rid of me for a lot of reasons, you know. You can fire me for just any number of reasons. And, 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 uh, but listen, the one I just gave them permission to, I mean, you might not like the way I dress, or you might not like the way I lead, or this or that or the other. But I said, if I ever stop preaching the word of God, you do get rid of me because if you don't, God's going to punish me anyway. We need prophetic voices in our pulpits today. And we don't need to let the Jezebels of America today silence the prophetic voices. God will prepare and use prophetic voices to speak to every culture. Now, in chapter 18, we kind of come to our famous showdown on Mount Carmel. And you know that story. You know it quite well. Now, this is where Elijah and 450 prophets of, of Baal, I mean, prophets of, uh, yeah, 450 prophets of Baal uh, join together. And Elijah is the God called, spirit filled, spirit anointed voice. And here was the verse. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long, this is in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal's God, well, then follow him. I want you to notice this response. And the people answered him, not a word. Now, I want you to hear, let that sink in for just a moment. The prophet of God speaks truth in this situation. And the people for 58 years had been so dulled and so hardened and, if you will, so uh, caught up in this godless system that had started 60 years ago. At this point, they didn't even know what to say. They had nothing to say. They didn't know what was going on. Which led to the prophet now challenging the people with something, with this question. That was a direct challenge. You see, he had, he had, God had prepared this prophetic voice. And then he called these two things, to challenge the people, if, hey, if God's God, follow him, and if Baal, make a decision. Let me apply that to where we are today real quickly on the challenging the people of God. Listen, the time is not coming. The time is here and now, right now in America. You can't be a fence-straddling Christian in this culture. You got me? None of this warm, fuzzy cultural stuff where we can kind of have one foot in the world, one foot in the church anymore. No, it's either going to be all or none. Just like it is in China and North Korea. There are Christians in China and North Korea and in closed countries. And those people can't, you know, they don't have beautiful places like this to worship. They don't have the freedom that we still have. We may not always have this freedom, but we have it today. We better take advantage of it. He challenges the people just like Joshua did over in Joshua 24, 15. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. That was a direct challenge to the people that they could not be lukewarm believers anymore. They could not straddle the fence. You know why? Well, it's like Elijah. 
if you're going to play lukewarm believism in that day, they were going to get slaughtered, literally. The day may come in our culture where if you play it safe, we may have some of us who could get slaughtered one of these days if things keep going as they are. You see, God is after the hearts of the people of God. Without heart change, there will never be revival and spiritual awakening. Not in my life, not in your life, in our life, not in this country. By the way, we can't legislate morality, ultimately. It's got to come from heart change. We can't mandate moral change. It has to begin with people's hearts who are being changed. And then he challenges them not only to a challenge to the people, but then he goes a step further and says, you know, you know what we need to do? We need to rebuild the altar. Look at verse 30 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, I love this, come near to me, get close to the preacher. And so all the people came near, it says. And when they came near, all the people came, and with them there he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. You see, Jezebel had gone through the nation tearing down the altars of Jehovah. She was trying to deny the people of God a place to worship. And I thank God that even amongst COVID, and I believe that some of that, you know, I'm not saying COVID's not real, it is real, but I'm just simply saying that there are plenty today who would love to just keep the people of God from worshiping in the houses of God. We can't let that happen. There are some, there's some balances there. But you know, we don't have to have a building to worship, but the altar here is our heart, really. It's our worship in passion for Jesus and our willingness to live out our faith. And so there's this challenge from Elijah to get together and come back to the altar. And what was the expression of this? Well, we see that in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 18. Their response now was brokenness. And they knelt in prayer. They kneeled in prayer. Listen to these verses. And it came to pass at that time, the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, he's praying for the people, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. He's begging God, pleading with the people here. I hear me, Lord, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. There's revival. He's praying that the people of God will be revived. It's an incredible prayer. Because listen, prayer has always been at the heart of the revival of the people of God. Can I say that again? Prayer is always at the heart of the beginning of revival in the people of God. In 1857, I was born in 1957, so one year, 100 years before I was born. And of all places, New York City, South Manhattan, it's right down near Wall Street right now. There was a layman, his name was Jeremiah Lamphere, a Dutch Reformed church. And uh, there was a huge economic, there was a depression in the in about that time, leading up just before the Civil War broke out. I mean, things were not going well in the country. There are a lot of different reasons for that in America. But Jeremiah Lanfear, and I don't have time to tell this whole story, but you can Google it and read it for yourself. Just the Prayer Revival of 1857, Lanfear, L-A-M-P-H-I-E-R, if you want to read about it. But one layman had a burden, and he called for a prayer meeting from some business leaders around him. They were going to meet on a Wednesday at noon for an hour. And so he put out the notice, and first day, 
It was in September. I was born in September of 1957. This was September of 1857. On the first day from noon to 1215, nobody came. Just Jeremiah. From 1215 to 1230, nobody came. Just Jeremiah. At 12:30, finally, two men walked in. By 1245, there were about six of them. And those men began to pray. The next week, about a dozen came. About a week after that, about 30 came. Long story short is that God moved in miraculous ways over the next many months. And a prayer revival that began with a bunch of laymen in South Manhattan of all places. Not far from where the World Trade Centers stood. It's really interesting, isn't it? And over the next couple of years, a revival movement broke out in churches and spiritual awakening began to brew in our land. And historians tell us that over a million Americans came to faith in Christ over the next several years as a direct result of the prayer revival of 1857. You see, we want evangelism without prayer. But if we don't pray first... And if we're not salt and light in our communities, we won't see the evangelism that I know that we desire, particularly as Baptists. We love evangelism. And by the way, our, our baptism numbers, our evangelism numbers aren't good. We're losing the next generations. And so the prophet of God, Elijah, speaks these words of challenge to the people of God. They finally kneel in prayer. And now we're going to tie all this together at the end of this message. Look at verses 38 and 39. Because God began to work. God did work. God will work again. Listen to these verses. Verse 38. Watch God work. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. You remember the, you remember the showdown? We didn't read all those verses. I'm assuming you know that story. Verse 39. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces... And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Listen to me. The same group of people who were speechless just a little while ago are now on their faces, on their knees before a holy God when they see God working and they're crying out, he is God. He is God. You see, fire has often been associated with the presence and the power of the movement of God. I'm not talking literal fire necessarily. But Moses and the burning bush, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel by night in the wilderness, fire on the altar of sacrifice in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, described in Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire as a fire at Pentecost, symbolic of the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see what we're talking about? When I was a little boy, I grew up in Anniston, Alabama, and one of our biggest buildings in Anniston, Alabama in the 1920s and 30s was a hotel. And it caught on fire. My grandfather was the fire chief in Anniston, Alabama. He died a few weeks afterwards. They fought that fire for four days. My grandfather was in the middle of August. He ended up getting overheated, didn't sleep during that time. They were trying to fight this fire. And uh, my grandfather, whom I never met, he died when my father was just a little 11-year-old boy, actually. And I've I've taught my father's now in heaven, but he's told me this story. He's an 11-year-old. He remembered watching that hotel burn, and uh, my grandfather got pneumonia and after he fought that fire, and about three weeks later died. So my, and then two weeks after that, my grandmother, whom I never met, also died. My father was orphaned. Uh, his mom and dad died two weeks apart, and you can just imagine that. In the middle of 
the Depression still in America. And, uh, but I remember my father telling me that as a little boy, that he and a bunch of his friends went down. You know, when you're a little boy, even though his daddy was fighting this fire that ultimately led to his, his life being taken. My daddy said, for four days, just crowds of people would stand around and watch that building burn. And I thought about that hundreds of times when my daddy told me that story. He was a little bitty boy. He really remembered that story. He remembered his daddy and his mother dying. But here's the application. You know what? Lost people in this community will come from miles away to watch a church burn if it's on fire for Jesus. You, you with me? People want to see something exciting. They want to see God at work. And God did work in this situation. And by the way, once the fire of God fell, we don't have time to get into all of this, but remember the drought? Remember the drought, the warning? And that drought continued on. And remember, Elijah told Ahab, God's told me to tell you drought's coming and there won't be any rain, but at my word. I do want us to close with this. Look, listen to verse 44. Go with me to, and, and then we're done. Verse 44 of our text. Actually, let's go back. Let, let, let's go back to 43. This is Elijah. It says, after all of this fire fallen from heaven has come. So Elijah says to his servant, now go up now. Remember, they're on Mount Carmel. A high point you can see for miles. I've stood on Mount Carmel. It's a phenomenal place. So he says, go up now, and I want you to look towards the sea, Mediterranean Sea they're speaking of. So the servant went up and he looked, and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. He's looking for a cloud, looking to see if it's going to rain. And, and he said, no, there, there's nothing there. And then finally, verse 44, the seventh time he said, well, look at there. Behold, well, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, now, go up and say to Ahab, hey, Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, he's telling Ahab, and it hadn't rained. He said, hey, Ahab, you better get your umbrella. Something's about to happen. He told Ahab, you better, you better get out of here. Rain's coming. Prepare your chariot, verse 45. And in a little while... The heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he even gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You get the picture? That servant looked out there, and he just saw a little cloud out way off in the distance. And trust me, from Mount Carmel, you can see for miles. They say on a clear day, I've never been there on a completely clear day, that you can actually see the seashore from Mount Carmel, which is inland in Israel. But that servant saw that little cloud, and then suddenly that cloud began to grow, and the rain fell. Dear members of Morningside, I just want to say to you here this morning, I'm praying that we will begin to see a little cloud of revival movement in the churches in South Carolina and in America. We need it. We need a fresh wind to blow. We need a fresh fire to fall upon our people. Why? Because it's not going to be who gets elected into the White House or into Congress or even into our State House. I, I, I believe that's important. 
But listen, it's far more important. It's not what happens in the White House. It's what happens in God's house that determines the future of a nation spiritually. So I'm praying for revival. Let's pray together, work together. Let's kneel together in prayer and ask God to do something that only he can do because if there's a chance for our nation to turn around, and there is, there always is, if there's a chance it'll turn around, it's going to be because the fire of God falls upon us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the power of your word. Here's an old, old story, but it is so... So appropriate for where we are today, what's going on in our country today. And Father, I, I don't claim to be an Elijah by any stretch of the imagination, but I do believe that you're raising up prophetic voices in pulpits across this land to preach boldly and authoritatively your word. And God, I, I, I pray that the people of God, not just here at Morningside, but 2,100 churches in our state and all over, over our Southern Baptist Convention, and not just our Southern Baptist Convention, but those who believe the Bible, those who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone is their Savior. God, bring us together in such a grand fashion that the world will know, just like these people proclaim, that there is a God, there is a God, and He is the Lord God Jehovah Almighty. Lord, that's what's going to draw lost people. If we lift up Jesus, the Word tells us in the New Testament, when we lift up Jesus, people will be drawn to Him. Let Morningside Church and all of our churches, let my life, our lives together, lift up Jesus so that lost people will be drawn to our Savior in a way that only you can do it so that only you can get the credit and the honor and the glory. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to stand. Brother Mike, your chairman of deacons, is going to come. And Mike, if you'll come on and get in place, brother, wherever you happen to be seated there. I've lost. There you are. Come on down, Mike. And as we're standing, your chair of deacons is going to be here to receive anybody who might have a decision. Brother Chuck's going to be right here to lead us in an invitation verse or two. And whether you need to speak to Brother Mike or not, if you have a spiritual decision, want to join the church, I know your pastor's not here, but you come and talk to Brother Mike, your chair of deacons, or you might want to come and kneel on this altar and pray for our country. You don't have to come here, but this is an altar. And just like in Elijah's day, he called the people to come near and come to the altar. So if God's speaking to you this morning about any decision, you do what God the Holy Spirit is telling you to do as we offer this invitation. Brother Chuck, lead us, please, sure if you will.